Welcome back to The Shorter, a podcast on the Shorter Catechism where two pastors take 20-something minutes to confess their way through the 107 questions of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I'm your host, Tommy Park, and I'm joined by my co-host, Stephen Spinnerweber. Tommy, I feel like we've done this before. Uh, we have. We did this before. So you texted me and said, we have a problem. We do have. We did. Have, we, we, we are in the midst of that problem. We're All fixing right. the problem. We're fixing the problem because the first time we recorded this episode, and just let me say, it was the perfect episode, the, the lost you know, episode of the shorter podcast. I mean, it was. Yeah, the audio file is probably in some cave somewhere. There were there were like la- there was laughter there were tears there was drama and it's gone it is all gone it's the last it's the last episode you know th- this is i mean we're in the midst of 2020 there's a pandemic i mean i, I got to say that this is kind of like our watergate situation you know where is that audio i i call conspiracy well, do do you have any enemies any known enemies no no all right, I'll need to go through the list of mine. Uh, we'll get to the bottom of this. But we're going to record today's episode. We're going to give it a second go-around, so it should be even better. Yeah. Am I right? This should be the, the best of the best. That's right. This will go down when we create our top 10 episodes. This will be one of them. I think so. It's got that potential. So last week, we uh, or last time, we looked at question 20 of God entering a covenant of grace with his people uh, in the midst of their sin and misery. Very fitting, sin and misery, like lost podcast episodes. But uh, now we look at who the redeemer of God's elect is, and that's answered by questions 21 and 22. Who is the redeemer of God's elect? The only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who, being the eternal son of God, became man, and so was and continueth to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. And then question 22 says, how did this happen? How did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and born of her, yet without sins. Uh, And in these very dense questions and answers, they summarize for us the doctrines of what we call the Incarnation, and the hypostatic union. So, Tommy, tee off our time for us. How are we going to move forward? Yeah. So, we're going to break this up in, th- in basically three points, like any good pastors would. Uh, we're going to look at what is the incarnation, why the incarnation, and what is this thing called a hypostatic union? Hypostatic union. So, Tommy, tell us, what is the incarnation? Yeah, the incarnation is simply uh, that true reality that when Christ... He took on a, a he took on a a body. He became flesh. He became a hundred percent human, uh, and all of that is true physical characteristics. You know, he grew physically. We see this in Luke uh, two forty. He ate. He drank just like us. He got tired just like humans. Uh, he even died. Uh, so, simply put, Jesus in the incarnation had a true human body. But also a true human experience in his in his soul. So Hebrews yeah, yeah. five, I think, says that he he learned obedience. Not that Jesus grew from sinful in the way that we do to less sinful, but that he grew in understanding, wisdom, and stature. Uh, and also 
I mean, how else do we know that Jesus wasn't just sort of this cold, heartless robot walking around Judea? Like, what what did he do that we do as human beings? He he had like emotions, right? Yeah, what, he had emotions. You know, he wept. You can. He had compassion. Mm-hmm. You know, he got tired. He needed to eat. You know, he he was engaged uh, with the surroundings. Uh, he was also he was engaged with his relationship with the Father. You know, yeah. time and time again. Uh, well, particularly the, the temptation, you know, he, there in the early parts of the gospel, and it's pretty amazing that, you know, there he is, he's fasting and he's being tempted. And in the end of the narrative, I'm not, maybe it's in, not the Luke one, but, you know, that, you know, he, after those temptations, the angels had to come and minister to him. And and, and I think there's a, a, a very humanness to that reality. Yeah. Jesus didn't just walk off and say, well, oh, that was just a show. There were real needs that were met and satisfied by those angels. And Jesus also, in the garden, he was in anguish. But in the temple, in John, he's cleansing the temple. And, you know, zeal for the house of the Lord consumed me, this this righteous indignation and anger. Paul says in Ephesians, um, in your anger, do not sin. Jesus gives us the paradigm for what righteous anger looks like. So he really is the true human. He is the one that we were were made to be, as it were. He reflects the perfections of our humanity in the midst of our sinful world. So Jesus was real through and through, real body and real human emotions and, and you know faculties. But there are some who say in the ancient church, well, he just appeared to be a man. Those are the docetists. Dokeo, the Greek word, means seem or appear. And these people really kind of smuggling in Greek notions of matter, that the material, that the physical fleshly is like the prison of the soul. So they do this hard dualism of, of body and soul. And they say, well, God couldn't possibly take on a, a, a fleshly human nature like us but the problem is, is that if Jesus only appeared to be human, then we know that he can't actually represent real human beings like you and me. Yeah. No, he, I mean, he needed to be 100% human. And I mean, the early church, you see this a lot. You know, it's not like these guys woke up and go, you know what I want to do today? I'm going to create a heresy, you know? And the, and the reality is that the Bible stresses the 100%, Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. I like that you bring that up because... Sometimes when we come to this, we think, oh, Jesus is this composite being. He is 50% God, 50% man, or maybe 60-40, 70-30, more God and man. But the issue becomes, if he's not 100% God and 100% man, he becomes a tertium quid, a third kind. And as such, he can't do anything for you and me, and he's not fully God. So let's go to the Bible to really back this stuff up because because we're making some you know confident assertions but where do we get this from scripture because this is the final authority yeah uh the first place i would go is the uh john 1 john 4 uh, 1 14 uh, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us uh, like tabernacle that word literally yeah yeah cool. he came and uh and even john and first john he you know he talked about uh, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, that we've looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life that was manifest, and we have seen it and testify and proclaim it to you, the eternal life which was the Father and was made manifest to us, that we may 
that we have seen and heard and we proclaim uh, to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, you know, you got Philippians 2, Colossians 1, Hebrews, uh, you know, all these are very strong passages talking about Jesus being God, 100%, and him also being man, 100%. Yeah. You know? Colossians, the fullness, the one in whom the fullness of deity dwells. Yeah. Hebrews 1, the, you know, the exact, exact. imprint, exa- not, not like a sub, you know, like a pretty close, yeah. but the exact imprint of his nature. Yeah, he even makes... I think Colossians, you know, he makes the invisible God visible. Mm. You know, there's, there's just, I mean, once you slowly start working through uh, the Bible, you, you know, you kind of just see it come off the page how clear Jesus being God, you know, it was, and it, you know, it's just yeah. that, that big of a reality. Yeah, the fact that you know Philippians two. Uh, you know, verses 1 through 11, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, very clearly an ascription of his divinity, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and then here's the incarnation, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Divinity yeah. can't die. Yeah. So he has to be human. And, you know, this is a point to where a lot of people, they'll get confused at this point and say, well, look, Jesus emptied himself. So at that moment, he became just a man. And this is what's called kenosis or the the emptying of his divine nature. So he has this full divine tank and he just empties it. The issue becomes that represents a change in God, in the person of God. And what we need to understand is that Jesus, when he says that he did not count equality with the Father a thing to be grasped, that's equal in glory. And so for the time, he dwelt among us and shelved for a period the glory that was due him in heaven and due to him on earth. But for our sakes, he suffered and was afflicted. And we'll come back to the Hebrews two fourteen text, but just to, to read it quickly. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So Jesus is fully God, 100% God, and 100% man. But why? Why go through all this trouble? Couldn't God have saved us without having to send the Son to become incarnate, which is our second point? Yeah, so why the incarnation? Uh, the first point under this is a, simply for he came to redeem us. Uh, he had to come uh, to fulfill, uh, I would say he had to come to fulfill the covenant of works. He had to be that greater and better second Adam, uh, and he would ha- also have to be that perfect sacrifice that the, the blood of goats uh, and, and, and animal sacrifices um, you know, don't take away sin. Uh, mm-hmm. And Jesus is that perfect one. He lived perfectly for us uh, as that second Adam, but he's also a perfect lamb of God to to redeem us, to save us, to make us right. And and he needed to come to, to do both of those. The covenant of works was made with a man. And so a man needed to come and to fulfill the terms of that. And you're channeling 
Hebrews uh, chapter 10, verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you prepared for me. And then, behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Jesus is saying, all that the Old Testament sacrificial system was saying is fulfilled in my taking a body and dying for the sake of my people. Hebrews 10 will also stress this language through the once offering up of himself or through one sacrifice, he's reconciled us to God. So the old covenant could not do what Christ does. Uh, It was provisional and it was uh, effective for the time in which it was implemented. But the blood of bulls and goats were never what forgave people their sins. It was Jesus. Well, and I would, I would say that the old covenant was pointing to Jesus. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It was, it was screaming out this reality that one is going to come to do what needed to be done. Mm -hmm. And that was Jesus. And you see that throughout the, the whole Bible. Um, You know, is this the one Uh, even in the gospels, you know, even John the Baptist sounds like this, this last prophet was going to be, could be, you know, are you the one? No, I'm not the one, but Jesus is that one. And, and he had to be 100% man. He had to take on flesh. He had to do these things to redeem us, to save us. The Old Covenant was anticipatory. And I think that even though we don't hear this thorough explanation every time after uh, a sacrifice is offered, it doesn't mean that the people were thinking, well, this there's some native power or efficacy in, in this bull or this goat dying right now. We know because the prophets were looking forward, they were anticipating, even Moses was anticipating that something beyond himself was coming that was greater, and that was Jesus. So why the incarnation? It was in order to redeem us, uh, also to represent us as, as our high priest, and to sympathize with us, because Hebrews. Hebrews is really the key text for all things, I think, incarnational and especially for the priestly office of Christ to sympathize with us in our weakness. Now, in God's, uh, you know, tri-personality, Father, Son, Spirit, God doesn't feel emotions like you and I do. He he doesn't have these reactive uh, responses to the things that he has created because he is what theologians call pure act. There's nothing that happens upon God that elicits a response or some sort of emotional reaction. But in the incarnation, Jesus in his humanity is able to sympathize with us and identify with us because he's been tempted in every way that we were, yet without sin. Now, he wasn't tempted in the sense of having internal sinful desires like you and I have, but he was tempted from without or externally. Uh, Mark Jones makes this really good point. He talks about painful infirmities and then sinful infirmities. Painful infirmities are those things like you and I suffer with a cold, uh, a fever, COVID, the fallenness of the world around us. But Jesus didn't have this internal urge to say, oh, I really want to sin there. And sometimes people will say, well, how, how can he really understand what I'm going through? But we, we have to know this, is that it's good news that Jesus 
wasn't made like you and me with with sin and everything else included because there one would have been potential for him to fall and two god requires perfection not just in the external deeds but in the inward disposition of the soul yeah even in the heart you know yeah and jesus goes on in the sermon on the mount you know kind of i guess greaterly interprets the the ten commandments Mm -hmm. you know you heard it said, but I tell you, you know, whoever lusts in their heart is committing adultery. Whoever has hatred for a brother in their heart has murdered, you know, and so on. And and all those things are not true of Jesus, you know, because he's Isn't that pure. amazing too. Yeah, yeah. And even I would I mean, I would go back a little bit with the kind of the emotion like the raising of Lazarus, you know, because Jesus went went to that scene. He wept. However, he wasn't surprised by. It. I mean, he knew the whole situation. Remember, he delayed his. Entry, he did, you know, because he knew. But he still entered into that sorrow. He still entered into that pain. He entered into that. He wasn't surprised by death in that whole scene. Uh, but, but he, he willingly was, felt it. Yeah, and he was but, frustrated. I think death is the ultimate frustration of the fall, and I think mm-hmm. he, by weeping with Mary and Martha, he. You know, he entered into that sorrow, just like he enters into ours, and he can... The suffering servant. Yeah, that he, he, he understands, and we can go to him. Yeah, so in his humanity, he, he feels the full spectrum of what we feel, yet without sin. And that's why we can come to him and, and you know, we, we can feel this, this kinship with Christ, because he was made like his brothers in every way, and yet he's not just like us on a grander scale. He is this wholeness, this perfection, um, that really ought to draw us to him and make him that much more attractive to us. But also, Jesus was a man to be our exemplar. Jesus shows us what it's like to be truly human. He is our pattern. So, the writer of Hebrews says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith. So, he's a model for our endurance, for our perseverance, humility, compassion. I'm preaching on Matthew this week and how Jesus has compassion over the crowds. And I don't know about you, but it's really hard to have compassion for your enemies. Remember Jesus on the cross, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. How can Jesus do that? And yet that's something that we're called to do too, to not curse our enemies, but to bless them and not trade reviling for reviling, but blessing for cursing. Yeah, and I th- it's important to, to, to remind us that this is not an example to salvation. It's an example of... Maybe sanctification mm-hmm. that he he's basically showing us what the true image of God looks like, um, and as we live in faith and repentance, uh, we can also walk in those steps as best as God is working kind of in and through us through His Spirit. So our third point, we got time. What is the hypostatic union? I can't believe we're going to completely crack every mystery of the hypostatic union yeah. in ten minutes. Under 10 minutes. Uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 8, section 2 says that Christ took man's nature with all essential properties and common infirmities thereof. Those are the painful infirmities, not sinful, like Mark Jones talks about, yet without sin. And that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion without composition, or without confusion. This is really building off of question 22 of the Shorter Catechism. Yeah. I mean, first, I'm, I'll say that, I mean, here's a great example how th- a th- 
I think like the Westminster Confession of Faith is so helpful and how a thing like the Shorter Catechism is so helpful because it, you know, here's a concept in the Bible that's all over the pages, but here it just, boom, gives us a definition, gives us a picture, gives us a sense, okay, this is what we're talking about. Uh, it's, you know, one, you know, one distinct, you know, one, one person. person, two natures without confusion or conversion. Or, yeah. You know, all those, th- you know, so it just, it, it kind of tightens it up for us where uh, it helps us. So, yeah. So let's unpack that whole perfect distinct natures. That's the 100, 100 that we were talking about. Not 50%, not part natures and not, you know, an imperfect lesser quality divine nature. And then, but a perfect human nature. No, whole, perfect, but also distinct natures. And the distinctness of the natures is explained when it says that these two are inseparably joined without conversion, without composition, or without confusion. What do we mean by conversion, Tommy, when we say that the human nature of Christ wasn't converted or that the divine nature of Christ wasn't converted? Yeah, he didn't become divine. You know, he didn't become something he wasn't. So I think a lot of people would say, if I remember some of the stuff, like at the uh, baptism, uh, his baptism. Adoptionism. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Where like Jesus, you know, like he became. This is my son. Yeah. So he became Godness in that that event. That Mm -hmm. that event, you know, he was 100% man. God comes down, drops down a dove or whatever. Yeah. And boom, here's a, here's now he's God. Now he's God. So, and again, the early church at that time is trying to figure out how to explain all this. Exactly. But at the same time, you got to interpret scripture with scripture. You know, maybe we have a better advantage today because we have kind of some fuller taxes. Well, we do. And and look, and look at John one. Yeah. The word became flesh. So the word didn't, you know, cease to be the word and the word dwelt among us. So we've got no conversion. The human doesn't become divine and nor did the divine become human, which is that Philippians two misunderstanding. Well, he emptied himself. He, he was divine, but now he becomes only human that we're not saying that either. Also without composition, this is that tertium quid that Jesus becomes sort of like a divine Superman. He he's, there's this melding or blending of the two. And if that happens, then we lose the representative principle, but then also confusion. So when it says in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, that God shed his blood for the church, we're understanding that the person of Christ died and shed his blood. However, properly speaking, the divine nature can't bleed. The divine nature can't die. Jesus, human nature did. So those properties that are proper to the human nature. We want to make sure that those stay with him, uh, with his human nature. And then those that are appropriate for the divine nature aren't confused as being committed by his human nature. So for example, where Jesus says the son of man doesn't know the day or the hour of of the second coming, he's not talking about his divine nature because in his divine nature, Jesus is omnipotent or omniscient. He knows all things. But in his human nature, he doesn't know all things. So this is why I love Westminster. Three simple C words, conversion, composition, confusion, not what we're saying. And so this divine 
nature didn't swallow up the human, which is Apollinarianism, Eutychianism, they're related ancient heresies. Um, so this is the hypostatic union, two distinct but also inseparable natures. Because now Jesus in heaven, he's not just divine. No, he's both. He's he's a he has a glorified body. He's sitting at the right hand mm-hmm. of God. You know, he's in fullness. He is our interceding for us, as we'll see soon. Prophet, priest, king. You know, all those things still run true. Yeah, and one of the questions that I think uh, we could have made like a fourth point. We said, "What is the incarnation? Why the incarnation?" You know, if we were to have a sub four point, what is the hypostatic union and why the hypostatic union? The Westminster Larger Catechism actually talks about this. So, I mean, maybe we need to. Don't say it. Don't say it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> let's, let's get done with the shorter first. <laughs> that's right. Uh, first things first. Questions 38 and 39 of the Westminster Larger Catechism. I'm only going to read them. And please study these, look at the proof text. Because these questions were so helpful to me in seminary when studying why did all of this happen? Why was this even necessary? Question 38, why was it requisite that the mediator should be God? It was requisite that the mediator should be God, that he might sustain and keep the human nature from sinking under the infinite wrath of God and the power of death. How could a, even a perfect humanity fully drink the dregs of God's wrath? Because his divine nature upheld the human nature to do it. Give worth and efficacy to his sufferings, obedience and intercession, and to satisfy God's justice, procure his favor, purchase a peculiar people, give his spirit to them, conquer all their enemies, and bring them to everlasting salvation. Why was it requisite that the mediator should be man? It was requisite that the mediator should be man, that he might advance our nature, perform obedience to the law, suffer and make intercession for us in our nature, have a fellow feeling of our infirmities that we might receive the adoption of sons and have comfort and access with boldness unto the throne of grace. Now, ton to talk about there. Maybe in more podcast episodes, we'll we'll touch on that. But there's a, a good idea too from Gregory of Nazianzus that I think ties all of this together. Um, he says, what was not assumed was not healed. So if Jesus just took a human soul, what would that mean for our bodies? Well, it would be loss. And if Jesus only had a human body, our soul was, would be loss. Yeah. So the fact that God made us body and soul and he's redeeming his body and soul, that is very good news. Yeah. No, he, he is. I mean, here's a great picture that he is. He is concerned about all of creation. Uh, mm-hmm. body, soul, what we see and not see. Uh, and we see that in a kind of an earthly sense here with Jesus, but we'll see it more as he, with the new heavens and new earth, that he's concerned about kind of making all things new. Amen. So we're at the end of our time. Hopefully this audio makes it through. I, we will press save and save and save. We're going to save it three times. Can you fax me the episode? Yeah, I can fax it to you. Good. Okay. Well, I'll page you later uh, to make sure you do that. Well, thanks again for joining us for the shorter. We're looking forward to our interview with Dr. Brandon Crow from Westminster uh, Seminary in Philadelphia. Till we meet you next time, keep it short. Who is-
is the Redeemer of God's elect, the only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who, being the eternal Son of God, became man and so was, and continueth to God and man in two distinct natures in one person forever. Who is the Redeemer of God's elect? The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ who Son of God became man and so was and continueth to be God and man in two distinct natures in one person forever. 